0: science? And how can it help us look at the world around us? Where are its limits? What's the value in literature, narrative, or analogy? And how can any lessons help us understand our world? Who's Norman Borlaug? And why is he responsible for saving more lives than anyone else ever? Thank you for tapping into this episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast. Those questions. Where some of what was covered in my conversation with today's guest, Dr. Ari Novi. Dr. Novi is a biologist, author, and CEO of the San Diego Botanical Gardens. He's also a very thorough and dynamic thinker who, turns out, like most great educators, is really good at breaking things down to small pieces before finding the interconnectivity of it all. This episode was a very fun conversation to have that covers a lot of ground, It introduced to me a whole new ways of looking at our time. I learned a lot of really fascinating things about the nature of plants that I had no idea about, particularly appreciative of how they're architected now. What is science and what is it good for? And how given the challenge we're up against in the Anthropocene, that the only inadmissible action is inaction. A really simple framing that's something I'm still thinking a lot about. I don't want to really frame this episode too much, as it starts off running and Really doesn't stop throughout. We recorded this outside, so you can hear some pretty lovely birds chirping in the background, uh, but there is occasionally some wind noise. We had microphones, but they failed about halfway through, so what we're listening to is the recorder I had on the table. I did my best to reduce the noise, but there's still a few spots in there. Because of the mic, the episode starts about two minutes in, and Ari is briefly defining what the Anthropocene is. All you miss, though, is my first and only question. And it's citing a chapter that Ari wrote in Living in the Anthropocene, Earth in the Age of Humans. The chapter he authored is titled The Earth as a Garden. And my question was, what does it mean to have the whole Earth as our garden? You'll see Ari is only a little bit into his response, so you really didn't miss much. Just after the drums, my conversation with Dr. Ari Novi.
1: in which as the name you know suggests is dominated by us you know that we have become the dominant force on the planet and that people or not people but you know whoever can observe 10 million years from now um, will be able to see that in the geological record which is a really mind-blowing kind of a thought process and we were asked to to write a chapter um and it was very interesting they wanted you know three to four page late chapters you know for an educated lay audience no citations, no data, you know, they, they wanted us to talk about, and we, and we were the people doing plants, you know, and, and not botany, not agriculture, but kind of all of it, so it was a sort of daunting task, <laughs> um, but the 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 concept came from um, many, many years ago, uh, the, uh, the great ecologist Dan Jansen um, at the University of Pennsylvania mm. had given a talk, and he actually never published anything with this in it, but he gave a talk where he... Mentioned that you know that the Earth is a garden, you know that, and, and what he meant by that, or at least what we think he meant by that, was that you know we are cultivating to some degree all of the Earth um, and all of the plants on the Earth, and um, and so that that was a really poetic way of of, uh, of saying that, and so we reached out to Dan. Before we published this chapter, and we said, "Look, we're working on this chapter, and the theme of it is essentially what you were talking about all those years ago." Um, can we, you know, use, use use your phrase in the title? And, and of course, we, we mentioned him in, in in it. So it came from Dan, um, and he was very gracious and said, "Of course, you know? <laughs> And we said, "Did you ever publish anywhere that we could cite?" He's like, "You know, I don't think I did." You know? <laughs> um, and of course, he's very accomplished and published tons, you know. Um, so it's really just a simple thing, right? I mean, you know, we are gardening the earth. Um, the the if you look at what the earth is, first of all, um, in terms of living mass, plants are by far the the vast majority of what is on the planet. You know, hmm. uh, I remember when I grew up, I don't know why I thought like, you know, if if, if you know if whatever organism weighed the most if you were able to aggregate all of that like organism you know I was it was like ants or some kind of an insect but yeah, it's, I did too it's plants I mean it's it's not even close all arthropods you know are like you know way less than one th- fifth or one tenth of what all plants are huh. um, and so plants are just by far you know what's going on the the, 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 the single most common um, compounds on, uh, you know, organic compounds on the earth are all either in plants or produced by plants. Um, so plants really determine our kind of biosphere and the building blocks of life more so than anything else. Obviously, in the, in the, in the terrestrial environment, plants are, are the, 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 the thing that are taking energy from the sun and converting it into chemical energy, which is the basis for the entire food web. You know, if you if you take a kind of large view of plants, including in the ocean where photosynthetic um, uh, algae and and other photosynthetic organisms, if you kind of say, okay, they're kind of plants too, which you know, fair enough, um, then it's it's true in the ocean as well. Um, So, it's uh, plants are a really really big deal, and the reality is, if you're going to accept the premise that you know human beings in the Anthropocene are influencing the entire biosphere. And I, I, I do think that that's, I, ac- I accept that premise. I think the evidence that's presented by the scientists who pushed that forward is very, very sound. I think there's a lot we don't know, but I think in very broad strokes, I think that's a, a very fair way of looking at the world. Um, so if that's true, then we are we are gardening the planet. Now, some places we garden the planet very purposefully, right? So if we're looking at, uh, you know, an urban or suburban environment, in in those environments it's very easy. We've we've removed all the plants that were there for the most part and we've Mm -hmm. we've replaced them with plants that we want there. And even places that are natural-looking, like Central Park in New York City that looks like, it's something that was just left to be, and the city was built around it, and then that was protected. But in fact, that's not the case. It was, you know, that is a a, a stylized version of what somebody feels that nature should look like, um, even though it's naturalistic. Um, and certainly, as we get to more rural environments, agriculture becomes the the, the gardening that that we do, right? Um, so we garden, uh, we and agriculture, including rangeland, we is about 30 percent of the terrestrial surface of the earth. Um, so for you know an urban lands are maybe somewhere between two and four percent of the surface of the earth so between agriculture and our urban and suburban spaces where we practice what we would think of as you know regular gardening landscaping vegetable growing extensive agriculture and rangelands and why i include rangelands in agriculture is because we absolutely manage the vegetation on those Mm -hmm. rangelands sometimes very very intensively for the forage quality the food nutritional quality for the, the the um raising animals that are on them. So so right off the bat, now you've got what, just over a third of the entire surface of the earth that we are actively managing. And then you bring in the Anthropocene component of that and you go, well, you know what, the rest of it we, we're actually managing too, whether we're aware of it or not. I mean, if, 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 if we're now influencing the atmosphere and climatic conditions to the point where that is pushing the ecology of, of, of forests that we don't even go to, mm-hmm. um, we have deposition from acid rains and pollution and all kinds of other things. Glyphosate. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that all, all well, glyphosate talking G- about yep. it, agricultural chemicals. Yep. Um, that, it's a little bit of a different story, but yes.
0: It's it, still it, in the atmosphere, as far as like a whiskey, still it's, it has a similar effect. But they're seeing it in the north. Yeah, understand. no, you can you
1: can measure it. But I, mm-hmm. if, if we're talking about things that are
0: really actually impacting
1: the, moving the ecosystem, so, you know. the First order effects. Yes, exactly. Okay. So, I mean, already with just first order effects, you know, with, with the amount of sulfur we put out into the air from from you know, burning fossil fuels and things mm-hmm. like that. You know, sulfur is a limiting environment, a limiting element in a lot of different you know ecosystems. Mm-hmm. And so we, we're adding sulfur all over the place. And that, you know, changes things. It changes the fertility of the soil. Sometimes, in some cases, acid rain and things like that changes pH um, as, as well. As metals that are available, these things change weathering patterns of the bedrock. And the bedrock contain you know, the minerals naturally, and how they weather determines you know, in what forms and how much they get out in ways that are available to um, the biota and all the things like that. So, um, yeah, there are all these things that are happening, um, and some of them are very local. So certain kinds of things that we do sort of stay where they are. And other things that we do, the, the, t- the traditional non-point source pollutions that we talk about, um, they, they spread, right? And of course the, 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 the most spreading thing that we can think of as an example is carbon dioxide. It doesn't matter where you produce carbon dioxide on the planet, it mixes in the atmosphere and, um, and, and that you know, it affects you know, global warming everywhere. Um, of course you have things like heavy metals, which when we release them into the environment, tend to stay more or less where they are um, in, in many conditions, but have significant impacts where they are. And then there's of course everything in between. So we wrote the article, um, you know, trying to, in a very few words and with very little technical language, um, explain that, that this is the case, that we are in fact gardening the planet and that we are gardeners. Um, and then without kind of coming right out and saying, you know, well, you know, we are doing it and therefore we better act like it, you know, sort of beginning to hint at that. But also trying to be optimistic and not just pessimistic about the whole thing. Um, I, I, I do not believe that, you know, in sort of the... Um, you know, I, I'm—I myself am I'm a little bit of a techno optimist at times, and in my best moments. And so, just because we have all this control and power, does not necessarily mean we are destined to be on a path of destruction. Hmm. Um, I think that, you know, like all great transformations of human technology, um, we kind of do tend to let the genie out of the bottle a little bit right mm-hmm. um, and it happens in, you know we have all these revolutions associated with technology in human history whether it's the printing press or gunpowder or you know um, you know whatever's going on and things do get a little out of control for a little while but in many cases humanity does learn how to how to you know check itself and, and, you, and you know um, come back from the brink in, in these areas so, so the hope of course is that humanity will recognize how strong its impact is, how many technologies and how complex it is that we're leveraging all these technologies all over the place, not just uncritically think and go, well, all this technology is bad and we're creating too complex of a world and we have to just sort of, you know, push ourselves back into the stone age. I'm I'm, I'm very much an anti-Luddite. but that we have to be thoughtful, we have to let science guide us uh, uh, in terms of how the physical world functions. Um, but that science by itself is, is, I always think about science as a shallow epistemology. right? It doesn't, it doesn't really tell us anything deep about our own meaning or existence. That's not what science was designed to do as a, as a, as a, as a language. And, um, and so we have to lean on other areas. So the, the article doesn't quite go that far, but it really sets the stage to help you know, the, the, the layperson understand that the earth is being heavily influenced by human beings. Uh, a lot of that is very purposeful and very, very, very. we know what that looks like. People know what farms look like in their mind. They have a vision of some kind of a farm. They have a vision of what it means to manage vegetation at their house or in their city or their town, um, and, um, and, uh, and that these are big impacts and they mean a lot, and that we have to do things in order to manage those resources better.
0: I like that a lot. Yeah, I like that. Thank you for framing the Anthropocene that way too. That's great um uh, there's a lot of thought that you sparked in 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 with me there uh i definitely think so this is the second time and i will look this up and post this uh but i think it was rousseau and i think it was one of his his second or third discourses um but he's he essentially said that uh technology will always outpace our morality and i think there's a lot of truth to that i think um you know if if it's a new form of ideas like we've seen that like the turn of the 1900s of what ideas can do as far as a, a revolution, a revolutionary idea, or a really novel idea, um, or like you know anything from uh, really any point in time? Agriculture has a lot of examples, and are the ones that are most ruminating in my mind of like how revolutionary you know uh, petrochemicals were and putting in there, and now we're starting to understand the effects of that. Um, but it's most I mean there's a lot in there that I never heard before. Like I didn't thought about the erosion of natural minerals, probably causing some some immediate effects from you know any number of things um and I, but i really like one of the things i kind of want to ask you on is uh would you say that your view on the anthropocene is one where we should accept the fact that most nearly every square inch of the earth is impacted by homo sapiens and that by doing that we should try to recognize it in a way of building it in a more Symbiotic way, I suppose, or I I don't know what the right word would be for that, but to recognize it and try to cultivate Everything as if it was in the sense that, like you said as a garden Um, and that some of the and then I want to extend out of that to ask you a question Would you say that science because I want to ask you about that? uh, your your point about science is that science is like almost as if it's really a really good ruler and it tells you how long something is. It maybe can tell you how something functions. It can tell you the trajectory of something, but it doesn't really a good jo- job of telling you why or what or how, other than what you keep doing by using another measuring stick of some sort or another. Um, is that was that about right? What you were meaning by that? Yeah, and? absolutely. I mean, I
1: think the um, yes. I mean, science is an an artificial construct. I mean, science is itself, it, it, people get confused, right? So so. When we talk about science, I think when people say in the vernacular science, when they say, oh, you know, people are doing science, scientists are doing science, science tells us X, Y, or Z, what they really mean is the human endeavor of this activity that utilizes what we call the scientific method or empirical thinking mm-hmm. to tell us information about the nat- natural world. That's, that's what they mean. It's a, sh- it's a shorthand for a human-created system of systematizing knowledge and testing that knowledge and determining whether or not that knowledge is is, is universal from the sense of, of physical reality or is not. That is that is fundamentally what science is when we say that, um, and that's different from from if we if instead somebody says science meaning the act of, of being or scientific mm. being. So so, and I think that that's one of these areas where just we 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 always need to kind of help ourselves with the terminology to make sure we're talking about the same thing. So if somebody's using science as shorthand for the the nat- you know the, the nature of the universe <laughs> right. that's a that's a that's that's not what I'm talking about mm-hmm. I'm talking about the the, the process the, you know that started in the Enlightenment this very, relatively recent process in human um, thought that uh, that that creates this this scientific process which has been designed to tell us what physical realities are in fact the subject to universal truth and law versus which ones are, are not. Right um and it's very and and th- it's an incredibly powerful tool right fundamentally it's it's a, it's a i think it's a language it's mm-hmm. a it's a tool um just like just like you know spoken language or musical languages th- mathematics in general mathematics yeah. is a language right it's a, it, right mathematics is a language which describes um, well, mathematics doesn't even have to describe the, the real universe. Mathematics no, I, can describe that even, anything.
0: And I that would posit is mathematics even a discovery or an invention? Right. But mathematics is it,
1: clearly an invention. Right. I don't think there's even a.
0: Well, I mean, one plus one have. does equal two, right? That's a universal truth. You have one it's thing, you have two things. Well, I suppose on which dimension you want to. Choose Absolutely, right?
1: I and mean, I love that you know there's there's been a the meme running around the internet for the last couple of months about um, they did the two plus two equals four thing, right? Mm. If you're adding four uh, squares together. And you put them all so that they fit you know, right. with the vertex, you know, with a vertex in the center. You make five squares. So, right, right. so, so with the with the with the geometry of squares, when you add two plus two squares together, it in fact does equal five. Right, right, so, right. in fact, you know, that very simple geometric proof there shows that you know, what, what two plus two equals four or two plus two equals five is not a nonsense statement mm-hmm. or, or an or an iconoclastic statement. It's a contextual statement that sometimes mm-hmm. two plus two equals four, sometimes two plus two equals five, right. and um, and it's it just a reminder that when, whenever, you know, again, mathematics is an attempt to 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 figure out the rules, but it's an imperfect attempt, right? And we, and we know this from, you know, Godel or, you know, whatever famous mathematicians have, you know, talked about that, right? Um, and, of course, this goes back to Aristotle and before, yes, right? right. You know? So I think a lot of times we kind of get ourselves tied up in knots because you know, using Aristotelian language, are we talking about the form... Or you know, or an Aristotelian form, a, you know, a, a, the you know the, the idea of something mm-hmm. that's perfect that maybe is attainable in, mm-hmm. in our in our language, or are we talking about something a bit more concrete, reality, and, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's important to recognize some mathematicians are in fact in in a, in a completely, um, you know, mathematical space, you know, where the and, uh, you know, and they they don't need to have reality involved in what they're doing, and there's a lot we can learn from that, and that's great but that's important. Others, other, other mathematicians like economists are you know, full, you know, fully applied and of course many people are somewhere in the middle. And I think sciences are quite similar. And one of the hard mm-hmm. things for the public is that every different scientific disciplines, and especially if we allow in the social sciences, are using, they're using math. I mean, science is you know, the, the, the language of science, which of course science is a language by itself, but the, 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 one of the more important languages of science is math, um, and, and mostly statistical mathematics. Um, and you know the you know we 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 often are talking about two different things. So and each di- discipline of the sciences is also a little bit different. And there's all this human jockeying and ego that kind of like ma- makes that messy. And so just as a personal anecdote on that topic, when I was I sort of ran from the sciences when I was younger. I, I, I did not want to be a scientist. And part of it was because you know I, I had bought into some idea that somebody taught me when I was in high school that there were sort of two kinds of sciences there were were there were discovering sciences you know science that, science that found out new things about reality and there were descriptive sciences and and biology was generally in the descriptive sciences and it was sort of looked down upon a little bit like hmm. that it didn't take much human brain power or it wasn't that interesting to study you know to to ca- catalog you know how an insect works or a plant works or or how it's put together that's sort of That's a very base kind of a thing, but like doing theoretical physics or something like that was a very high minded, um, you know, form of science. And and that turned me off. And so I abandoned the sciences and I got an undergraduate degree in literature and history. Um, And then it was a love of horticulture for me that brought me back into the sciences and then really looking at the sciences as a tool to accomplish wise, you know, management of the planted landscape. Um, is a very, very, important tool because I used to ask questions like, well, why is this plant diseased and that plant is not diseased? Why does this plant live here where the other plant doesn't live there? You know, why, you know, and it's very pragmatic kind of stuff. I want to plant this plant, but it's not doing well in this spot. And it's like, well, it's got too much water. It's got not enough water. It's getting a disease. It's got a nutrient imbalance. It's not the right soil pH. It's, you know, it's, it's it like shade. There's full sun. I mean, you know, the more you start to interrogate and investigate those questions, you start to get into sciencey kind of stuff, you know, and, um, and so for me, science has always been a very useful thing, and I've never held science up as this, you know, again, it's a, like I said earlier, to me, science is a very shallow epistemology. If you're going to build, if you're going to try to build a set of values for how to live life only off of science... I think you're going to end up with a very shallow and unsatisfying way of looking at things which is probably why people like richard dawkins are very unpopular you know Mm -hmm. to to everybody except for you know scientists um and even most scientists don't even love it right so it's it's um it's you know this gets to the fact that we all talk past each other Mm -hmm. things are very complicated nowadays you know we, we we have access to more knowledge than we ever have had had um we have all of this technology that's expanding our access to knowledge right so i don't have to store a lot of knowledge in my brain anymore. I can look up Boyle's law very quickly on my phone. So why am I going to you know try to memorize it? Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with you know you know I might I might have memorized the stuff I use a lot, but if I haven't looked at you know the, the the equations for relativity or for Mendelian inheritance or whatever it is, I know they're out there. I can go grab them, and if I can do the math, I can do the math. Right. So um, we have so much going on. We have such an ability to have conversations with other human beings that are that are that are really. Across vast, you know, oceans of, of human knowledge that we ourselves did not generate, right? We we're able to mm-hmm. draw on the, the, the cumulative knowledge of so many people, you know, developing so much knowledge over so much time. That it it means it's hard to communicate, and we probably need to spend more time discussing shared values and shared assumptions in order to get to the point where we can have really useful conversations about really complicated topics. Um, and I think. Getting back to our earlier conversation, where technology, you know, sort of outstrips our ability to, you know, control or think about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think in some ways that's exactly what's happening with our own language. You know, our mm-hmm. our ability to communicate. Um, you know, te- te- the technology has increased the speed with which we can communicate, and the distances across which we can communicate, and the scales at which we can communicate. Um, but we have not yet developed the ways of harnessing that and doing it really um, in, in a in a productive way. And we're seeing that you know, this is not, of course, limited to sciences. We're seeing that in politics and you know every every area where where, where knowledge intensity is important. Um, and we have to learn that. And, and you know that happened. You point you you're talking about agricultural technologies. I love talking about. But in terms of communications technologies, you know, after the invention of the printing press, you know, with Gutenberg. There was a period where, you know, uh, before that, the canonized knowledge existed in libraries and these handwritten texts, and they were were very well controlled. People didn't fight, you know, as much about what was valid knowledge and what was invalid knowledge. Now, they they may have had knowledge that they considered valid, that today we wouldn't, but those fights weren't there so much, right? Right. As soon as the printing press came, you had, now you had, everything's a double-edged sword, so you had this ability to to, um, democratize Good knowledge, so so the great books that only a small number of people had access to, now many people could have access to it. But also, really crappy knowledge could also be spread really easily, mm-hmm. right? You know, so you know, everybody wasn't just printing tomes of great knowledge; they were printing lots of pamphlets right, <laughs> and, right, right, and right. advertising and yeah. all the, you know, and snake oil sales proliferated, right? And so, um, and that's what happens. And it took it took time to kind of understand. You know, we, we built we built new systems. Libraries changed. We built public universities. We, we built all kinds of different things that um, would help us as a society better navigate the world with the printed you know, material being available. And fundamentally, I think you know, we're, we're now trying to navigate a world in which digital information travels differently and faster, um, and, and we have to catch up you know, with, with how to do that. And that's exacerbated by the fact that it's not just the communications that's changing, but in fact the, the technologies in which we use to, to manipulate our physical world um, and, and things like agriculture.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, just as much, I think the communications aspect to your point is a good way of kind of reflecting back the broader time that we're in, right? Like there's an overall gluttony of information, but there's also an overall gluttony of really anything, right? Like all sciences are really exploding in what they're able to have access to and do and I mean, you see individuals, like, how long ago was the idea of, like, kind of a Batman billionaire that's able to make a rocket company be something that was, like, out out of the norm, right? Right, right. Now, I mean, I can think of three people off the top of my head that are doing that, right? Like, the amount of what we have available to us is kind of reaching a really interesting level. And I think to your point, yeah, definitely we're having a hard time of catching up to it. Uh, There's more information in the opening essay of this. I say there's more information at our fingertips, but that just makes it harder to find anything
1: right we have to learn how to navigate that right and and and, you know i I think you know i'm I'm not enough of a scholar of history but it, it feels like it's true to say that you know technology and information um Explosions happen periodically, and they always overwhelm and communicate. Mm. And they can sometimes they happen when cultures clash for the first time. So new information comes in not because it's new information, but because it's new to one particular you know group mm-hmm. of culture. And that's a very painful and, and awful process mm-hmm. um, for at least for <laughs> some people. Um, and most of it, history, I would even it, say that yeah, that's abs- the case of that. Yeah. yeah. And then it also happens when there are you know new technological innovations, um, and, and of every of every kind. And unfortunately, you know, writing is an important form of technology and mm-hmm. writing has been available only to a small, you know, segment of society until very, very recently. And so w- we don't know that much about what was really going on, you know, more than, more than a few hundred or thousand years ago. Um, you know, we, we always talk about, most people when they talk about human history, they, they, they mean at maximum a 10,000 year history. But mm-hmm. more practically, probably only about two to 3,000 years before mm-hmm. we really have any significant written record of. But you know biologically, humans have a you know over a hundred thousand year history and maybe m- quite a bit longer depending on how we want to think of what humanity means and and so we're, you know, we're always dealing with this, you know, what, it's, fu- it's funny how we can talk on the one hand about being overwhelmed by information, but on the other hand, be like, well, we almost, we know almost nothing. Yes. Um, yes. And so again, I think it comes back to not so much the raw numbers or even the relative numbers, but our ability to handle the kind of information yes. and, and deal with it and order it and communicate it and then apply it to the most significant you know, challenges that, that we're facing.
0: Yeah, no, I, I love all of that. Yeah, know I'm, I'm a big fan of Socrates. And I love his answer to, you know, what is wisdom? And it's all I know is that I know nothing. Um, and, I, and I think that that's definitely true. Like, I mean, we, we can go back to math and physics, right? Like I was teasing a little bit about, you know, one plus one does equal two. I mean, but no state actually does exist because it always exists in multiple states. And it really, only, it really only exists in the dimension in which you're using a ruler to see if it exists, right? And then at that point, it's only true if you exist to stop asking, why is that true? So, I mean, all of these things are kind of, and in a really interesting point and i think what's interesting with your your gutenberg printing press kind of analogy is that nowadays we have twofold right it's not only do we have access that anybody can see whatever it is out there but anyone can speak of anything that's out there which in really any other epoch that i can at least recall in what we're talking uh it wasn't usually that case right like just the breaking of being able to have access to knowledge led to the reformation and the renaissance that all kind of fell
1: and it's it's interesting. So I'm, my undergraduate degree happens to be in Italian literature,
0: and there were um, no wonder we're getting along.
1: It it it, it, it what's, what's what you uh, literature? Together? Yeah,
0: no, I actually I'm in tech, but I uh, I majored in uh, politics and English. Oh, so yeah.
1: So the Italians, you know, were in, especially in sort of post World War period, Italian intelligentsia. You know, Italy was very torn in World War II. I mean, you know, it was not not everyone loved Mussolini. Not everybody was thrilled that Italy was a fascist state. It was you know very 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 broken. And um, and Italy had only come together as a country in the late 1900s, anyway. Which is
0: something I think people take for granted. Just like hit on that again, like it was a lot of different groups of kingdoms, almost right, State, right. different states that all came together, and, and then Mussolini kind of ratcheted up a little naturalist, nationalistic rhetoric, and not everybody was happy about it. No. I'm grossly simplifying, that, right?
1: Exactly. It was certainly not a unified country, just as we are not in a unified country, right? And of course, we tend to anthropomorphize. You know, sovereign states, and, right. and some states are very much you know uh, uh, you know more aligned than others. And but those uh, are the exception. Those are the rule. exceptions. Like Most J-
0: Japan, you can definitely point to Japan sure. being both a nation and a state, but that is a rare, rare. thing. Absolutely.
1: So, but interestingly, the intelligentsia. So Italy had a, a, a at the same time a very strong um uh history and, and and activity in in communist you know literature and scholarship and thought as well as in fascist and capitalist and you know those kinds of things and I don't I don't mean to put fascist and capitalist together but just all I of mean, those you all the different things. It's, it's,
0: it's just a fault line you're showing it's, it, and it's really as if just kind of how the alps, alps is a fault line mm-hmm. and you know italy is an out, outstretch from that is really how it was idea wise right. between spain and russia Absolutely but the point i want to get to is that um Many of the leftist thinkers
1: in Italy, and going back to writings even in the in the 50s and 60s, um, as a reaction to fascism and the fact that it was you know controlling of information, right? You know, fascist states were very on they didn't hide it. They had ministries of propaganda, you know, and mm-hmm. you know it, it, so, so did socialist states too. They just a, you know point out that it's not a left right thing, but in Italy it happened to be on the right, you know, whereas in the Soviet Union you know, it just happened to be on the left. Um, but the Italian left, who was re, re, you know pushing back against the the, the, the fascist right. And their control of information, they actually imagined a society of the future, right? Even well before the technology existed, where, where, that they called where information trans, uh, transfer was instantaneous, hmm. and sort of like to them that was an extension of like a, a like a like an extreme democratization, and they felt that that was going to be a force for tremendous positivity, you know, that and in fact that that was required, right? Because what they were they were very concerned with looking at how power structures. Uh, controlled information and they thought only by sort of simultaneously making all of information as it happened available everywhere could you overcome the problem of you know entrenched power being able to control information that feels very quaint to us today Um, uh, but that but nonetheless so so it's, it's it's i mean the point you know where technology you know so we think of technology as this leading edge and then we react to it but it's even more complicated than that i mean people are, are very much thinking about these technologies be- before they they come on uh, you know the, the people started talking about concepts of new media in the 70s and 80s you know uh, before the new media was even out there some things they were right about some things they were wrong about some of those people ended up being innovators in that space um, but it's, 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 you know, it's complicated and human beings for whatever reason, I certainly don't know the reason, are, are really diverse in, 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 the, in our thought and in our experience. Um, we get a lot right, we get a lot wrong. We're all pretty hubristic and egotistic, especially those of us who seem to want to have conversations with all of society. That's a, you know, an interesting thing to do. Um, and um, we, you know, it's, it's kind of all over the place. It's really fascinating.
0: Yeah, I, I think human beings are really no different than most other species, only more so. Maybe. Right? Like, maybe. we have a lot of, like, I would say the, this is my own personal using, but I think the one thing about Homo sapiens that makes us so unique is our adaptability. You know, like, a lot, I know a lot of species can kind of adapt, but the fact that, like I said, only more so, like, we, we definitely wrap it up at, to a different degree. Um, and as, you know, we, we build and interact with the environment in a way that, once again, is like other species, but only more so. And everything is kind of ramped up. And I think the unique thing about our time and, is that we can reflect on other things going back, like what you just said, in, mm-hmm. in, in near full color, right? Like we can look back and read writings and almost kind of have an idea of what it is. But we we also, at least I always try to remind myself that we're reflecting back from our own stance, right? Like living in that time Absolutely. and looking around left and right is a lot different than looking from another lens Absolutely. Back.
1: And, and that's a huge societal debate that we have right now is, is is do we evaluate people in the past relative to their own time or, mm-hmm. do, or, or do we evaluate them relative to our time? And, you know, that's a... Really fascinating, you know, values-based question. I, I, that, and, and I don't think science tells us anything about how to do that. That's, that is, I, I don't think there's any science that can be leveraged to help you decide how to how to handle that. That's a different kind of a conversation. And and sort of relating plants into this, you know, when you say that it's a really you know good point to say that you know humans are like other species, but more so, um, you know, from from an evolutionary perspective, humans are kind of you know we're one of the most supremely adaptable species, or I shouldn't say adaptable, we um, humans leverage behavioral plasticity huh. probably better than any other species, right? And especially compared to plants. So plants are really fascinating in that, you know, um, plants have the largest genomes in the world of all organisms, and they have the records on every possible way you can measure that. They, the, the species that has the most chromosomes is a plant. The species that has the largest genome, just in terms of the, the, the number of base pairs, right? Sort of raw bits of information is a, is a plant. The most g- genes in, in, is, is a plant, right? So plants have all these genes, and part of that is that plants don't have what we classically think of in biology as behavior, right? You can't, a plant mommy or daddy can't teach its plant child a method that it learned you know, to forage, which, which some, some animals can do, you know, birds, and of course humans can do that. So what plants do is that they really are, are really complicated sensing machines that sense all kinds of stuff around them um, in, a, in, a, in a non-centralized way. They have no central processing unit. They have no brain, right? And so using metabolic signaling, they are, they are constantly evaluating their environment, and then they have tremendous genetic architecture to produce chemicals within them. They're really some of the world's most complicated chemical manufacturers to, res- to, to respond to to the changes that are happening around them that they need to deal with in order to survive. And that's a different strategy than behavior or locomotion, right? So some, you know, think about birds, right? Birds have a, wi- a window of temperatures that they can handle. And so what do they do to, to handle them? They migrate. They move, you know, in the warm seasons, they move north. In the cool seasons, they move south, right, if you're in the northern hemisphere. Plants can't do that. They can't migrate. They can migrate over generations, but they can't migrate within with, you know, within one, one individual. Um, nor do they have behavior. So so human beings, we're, we're pretty weak, right? We, we, ha- we, we can't produce all kinds of crazy chemical defense chemicals in the same way that plants can. Um, we can't tolerate crazy conditions or go dormant like a plant can. Uh, you know, there are many, many, many plants are very happy living full-time outdoors, in minus twenty degrees up to one hundred and twenty degrees, right? A human being, we cannot do that, right? We have to invent movement and clothes and technology and all that kind of stuff. And so, it's it, there. There are some interesting differences too, for, that you know, humans and mammals as organisms relative to um, you know other more stationary uh, organisms. And plants are fascinating because they're these these chemical manufacturers, and and they adapt, you know, through 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 through. Um, sort of survival of the fittest, right, if they, if they do get killed off by something, then the, the offspring that are able to more cope with that are um, are able to, to move forward. And plants are also interesting in that because they produce very large numbers of propagules, right? So you think about mm. an, an oak tree or something like that. An oak tree that lives three, three or four hundred years may produce hundreds of thousands of seeds per year. So that's millions of seeds over its lifetime. And those are viable seeds, right? And, and they're all released out into the environment and if, if one out of those million survives, then that plant has, has, has replaced itself, right? That's a stable population. If more, you know, that now you're going into larger populations, and there's huge selection pressure, like what, you know, what's, what's going on with that one seed that it lived? You know that, that it, it's got it's kind of a novel genetic combination relative to all the other you know um, all of its other siblings or half siblings. And, and so plants on that generational scale are really putting. A much greater amount of diversity out into the environment than than human beings with our paltry you know one or you know one or two children <laughs> at a time you know um, so it's 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 interesting to think about those basic biological facts of, of reproduction and life, and life life cycle and life trade history um, and how that influences the strategies biologically that that organism is going to use to survive
0: i've never I've never had that type of understanding like you just so basely put it like that Okay, so I'm gonna transform what you just said into this way. Like, human beings are almost like as if they're plastic. They're very malleable. You can mold them between generations. Behaviorally, we're behaviorally. Behaviorally, behaviorally yes, yeah. behaviorally plastic. And well, and we're genetically set up to be behaviorally our, plastic. Our, our genetics set up a hardware
1: that's plastic. There you go. Yes. And, and and so the hardware that is set up by our right. If you think about genetics as sort of the base code for writing the human organism. Then our genetics direct the formation of, of our of our brains and and the way our brains process information and control the various parts of our body and physiology. And there's there's homeostasis and other things in there that are not not dependent on your brain. But you know most of the stuff that we can do to, to adapt is is um, uh, to survive at least even within one generation is based on our ability to be behaviorally plastic right and to, and to tr- transmit that and language then becomes right so language if you can think of it as an emergent property of of of, of the human neurological you know um, architecture, infrastructure yeah. architecture that is you know one of the most amazing tools to affect behavioral plasticity to right. communicate what one other human being learned to another one so that they can adopt that behavior and that you know that we have the the physiological ability to do that, the mental ability to do that, and the linguistic ability. Plants have none of those things. The plants have have a chemical, uh, tremendous chem- chemical diversity, you know, and, and and that that's that's their main way of dealing with challenges in the environment. Uh, they can't run away. They can't make a weapon. They can't you know um, farm or harvest. Um, and so they they. Um, they, they, they can, but they, they they carry all these genes, this huge number of genes that can do stuff for them when they need to. And so they have sensing mechanisms. And it's all done in a, de, in a decentralized processing unit. Um, it's, there's no centralized processing unit.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. I've never, I never, um, luckily I have this going. I don't know what just happened, but my other recorder died. So we don't know oh. how to use the microphones anymore. Okay. Um, but uh, no, I've never had that type of realization before. Like, you know, um, I, uh, like I said, in another life, I was m- much more literary regularly. And, um, I think one of the most interesting things about really anything is banal, like really basic base information <laughs> or boring things right. tends to tell you so much more. And I've never, I've never thought about, like you said, like humans are genetically our hardware makes us by it, behaviorally plastic. So like plastic is the, you know, the kind of the construct or the glass I'm feeling for homo sapiens and then plants are almost like titanium you know it's like you're 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 molded into this titanium vessel mm. and you're incredibly great at whatever it is that has gotten all of the you know type of evolution to get you there and if anything needs to change here on out it's very you know like you said well, they're first... they're very they're chemically plastic chemically they're yeah. okay and
1: so so they you know the plant... behaviorally versus chemically right and so now there's there's a there's a there's a group of plant biologists who are trying to push to call that a behavioral plant behavioral sciences huh. and they're sort of say, and there's even a, a subfield of plant neurology um, hmm. which i hate because you know plants don't have neurons <laughs> but but their but, they're, <laughs> but their point is that you know, modern n- neurology is really about the biological hardware of processing, you know, complex signal information and and you know, processing it into something that can be used for the organism's benefit. And uh, you know, if you use that as the definition of neurology rather than the sort of an anatomical definition of arising an from a neuron, or right? yeah, um, that um, the plants absolutely do that, and they do it in a completely different decentralized way than than then organisms with central nervous systems have evolved to do that.
0: So it's almost as if plants are more akin to an ant colony than they would even to be to other anthropomorphs. Or...
1: you know, ant colonies and colonial insects are another. So if you get steeped in evolutionary biology, um, that's kind of like another one of its mm-hmm. own paradigms. And um, they have evolved. Um, so so what are what are referred to as you social tr- truly social insects. Um, which are certain bees and ants and, and there's one mammal, the naked mole rat um, that 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 are like that they're kind of thought of as their own thing and um, you know they they're 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 super organisms and and they're fascinating because you, you have, we'll use the classic example are honeybees, right? Um, honeybees, the, the, all of the, 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 you know, they have these complicated systems, right? In, in, in ants and certain bees, you have cast structures where they're, they're developmentally pushed into specific tasks. Um, honeybees are interesting because there's, there are very few castes There's actually only three castes There's the queen bee, uh, there's the drones, which are all the males. Um, so it's not a true cast because that's a that's a gender difference um, and then there's the rest of the females which are the which are the um just the worker bees, right? And they don't like you know there are there are roles in the hive. Like so, there's a nurse bee and there's a guard bee and there's foraging bees. But they actually cycle through those roles during their lifespan. Huh. Um, and so like when bees are first born, they they're, they're nurse bees and then they'll do other jobs and then their last job, all bees' last job is is foraging and they tend to die. They work themselves to death and they die outside the hive while foraging on their last trip. Wow. So that's not none of that's genetically determined, right? At, um, but what is interesting is that only the there's only one female in that hive of you know th- tens of thousands of bees that ever produces offspring so the the uh, th- that's different right so any genetic changes that might have arisen in any of the the in any of the worker bees um, cannot cannot be passed forward so even even though it's a It's not like us, right? So Mm -hmm. we we think of, this is why they call it a superorganism. So humans, we we differentiate ourselves into our cell lines. We have what we call germ cell lines and somatic cell lines. And germ cell lines are cells that can give rise to a reproductive propagule unit, right? So in humans, sperm or or, or eggs. Um, And or ova, you know, and then so that if there's, a ch- if there's a genetic change in those cell lines, that could be propagated forward to another generation. But if I have a mutation, in, you know, in a cell in my pinky finger, there's no real way, you know, other than using science, but, you know, um, to, 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 to have that move forward. Um, insects are, are like that, but instead of having that in, in cell lines, it, it extends out to the superorganism. So some individuals yeah. are germline and other individuals are not. Plants are kind of a whole other paradigm, right? Where um, one of the interesting things about plants is that um, plants are kind of like all stem cell, (laughs) you know? So, like, this is an oversimplification. No, no, you can generalize. This is an over oversimplification. But for many plants, um, many or most of their cell tissues can give rise to another generation. Um, And so, you know, your, your average sort of leafy tree, let's say... Any branch can push out a flower at the end of that, and so the tip of any branch could become a, uh, a, a germ cell line um, and there are some plants you know that are you know really almost any part of them, like cycads and things like that they can push out that kind of stuff from almost anywhere and um, and so it's, it's very very fascinating so yeah. they, they, don't, they organize themselves differently and, and the, the, the evolutionary pressures on them. Um, you know that mold that you know their, their um, development is are, are different are very very different you cut off you cut off my arm And you've cut off my ability to be behaviorally plastic on some level right if you cut off a plants, you know limb It's different you might temporarily disable it from producing food if there was a lot of photosynthesis Happening there and it has to heal its wound just like we do But you've actually not removed any base abilities from the plant all, all of its cells have the ability to to, to, to differentiate in different ways so that they can express all of the metabolic possibilities in that organism. Once I cut off my arm, I can't regrow another arm.
0: That's really fascinating. I, uh, I can't remember the economist has said it, but he said there's no solutions, only trade-offs. And that's really interesting. Like, what the, like genetically speaking, you know, the trade-offs of a plant in order to be you know, behaviorally less plastic, but then you know almost in an uh, ecological way more stable. Well,
1: right. you know, so there's no, I don't know that we have a good answer to this question, but you you have to, you want to ask yourself. So we talked earlier in our conversation that plants are the dominant life form mm-hmm. by mass. That's biomass, Right, yeah. just raw, raw biomass on the, on the planet. They're not the most diverse, right? There's probably about between four and five hundred thousand species of plants. Hmm. There are way more species of, in, of insects. Uh, we, there may be millions of species of fungi. Ba- you know, bacteria and viruses are even hard to think about species. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're they're not the the most diverse from our species concept necessarily, but they're the they're the, they're out there and they have the most genes, so that they may have the most chemical diversity or you know or metabolic diversity. And so there's some there's, you know, it's hard to test these things, right? But there seems to be some ability that plants have to fill niches niche space throughout the biosphere more successfully than really any other species. That's fascinating.
0: I uh, I read I. I sometimes will read about Alexander von Humboldt. Mm-hmm. He's like one of my perennial uh, going back to. And him going through the Andes and kind of having the idea of, I, I think it was like ecological niches maybe, or, or what, whichever one of his novel ideas, but essentially it was he was traveling along the same altitude in the Andes, and he realized that all of the plant species that was in one band of it, even though it may have been you know covered by several distances and, and changes in variation of elevation, but all of a sudden the same species, or right. a very similar one, maybe right. one that was like, you know, one branch off of it, but in the same, uh, 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 organism was, was kind of there, and that, that's really interesting, like, the way that you put it, it's almost like the, the plants kind of, get a foothold and they can just take over. Well, that's
1: an interesting thing, is that, so, like, what we would now, you know, call an ecotone, right, and he, he definitely was one of the people who really, you know, first theorized those things, and, and, and saw these great patterns in plant biogeography that helped him out, so you, so you do, you see these... You can go all over the world and see what are similar habitats, similar similar systems, right? So whether whether you're in an alpine environment in the Andes or you're in an alpine environment in the Alps, the the, the challenges, the, the the nature of that climate in that particular place are very very similar, and so the plants in those two places evolve very similar um, responses to deal with that, and we, and oftentimes they it's very different plant groups that come up with the same sort of a solution, and we call that convergent evolution. Mm-hmm. And of course that happens in, in, in other organisms as well. Um, but in plants, it's it, because plants are in all these niche spaces and they're moving, it's, it's, there's so many really wonderful examples. And so, I mean, one of my favorite examples would be cacti and succulents, right? Mm-hmm. So true cacti, which are only in the family Cactaceae, are only found, with, with one example, with one exception, in in, in North and South, and Central and South America. They're, they're a completely new world, Huh. Um, area. You go, but you go, but you kidding me? There's deserts in, in Africa and Asia and everywhere else, and they have cacti, and they don't have any cacti. They have succulents. They, there are a variety of other families, um, the Euphorbia family and the Portolaca family, that have, um, that have evolved the same things that we associate with, with cacti, big, thick, water-holding stems. Reduced or no leaves, photosynthetic stems, some kind of armoring, you know, to protect them. Um, a lot of time the armoring is actually there not so much for physical protection against herbivores but to create air boundary layers that decrease the amount of evapotranspiration, you know, in, huh. in these arid environments. Um, metabolically, the plants have evolved these alternate forms of photosynthesis. So we, we, we call CAM photosynthesis, crassulacean. Acid metabolism photosynthesis which is named for another plant family, the Crassula family. Um, they evolve that independently all over the planet to deal with these conditions of a very high aridity, um, where they need to use each water molecule much more efficiently. Even if it has, and, and they have trade-offs. There's cost to that, so we grow slower, but we're more efficient with each with each molecule of, of water that we're processing through us. And um, and so because there are there is this interesting fact of you know what you would call ge- geography and geology that that. the the base conditions, you know, the the water availability, nutrient availability, you know, atmospheric conditions, all that kind of stuff, are similar in distinct, discrete pockets that don't communicate with each other across the globe, plants make this wonderful natural laboratory to see how a very chemically diverse life form that's using the evolution of chemical diversity leading to morphological and other adaptive features, how that happens and how that that there are trajectories that are repeated all over the place as a as a result of, of similar uh, environmental pressures.
0: Yeah, G- uh, the geographic pressures that put on both human culture and species evolution just is is a wellspring of of just yeah, and, it's, and and
1: humans are different, right? So mm-hmm. humans have evolved a way of being able to thrive despite great geographic challenges. You know, so so we. You know, you, can, you and I, you know, who were both born in, you know, Midwest, northern climates, you know, we, uh, we can be here in, in Southern California, a completely different place than we, you know, grew up. You know, net, we, we don't see any rain for eight to ten months out of the year, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which is weird, right? You know, but it doesn't, that doesn't impact our ability to survive, you know, or, or I should say it does impact it, but we, we can come up with solutions to it. Mm-hmm. You you cannot take, um, you know, some of my favorite plant species, you know, white birch or gray birch or, you know. Uh, and bring them from those climates and put them here. It's just—they won't do it. Even if you baby them, even if you give them everything you think they want, they're just not going to do it. And um, it's—it's a—it's a different form of 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 uh, you know humans. You know, we could argue: Do humans have a niche? Mm-hmm. Do we construct our niche wherever we go? And there—and we're not the only organisms that do that. You know, there are there are these great cosmopolitan species, the rats. You know, mm-hmm. certain rats, certain coyotes. insects, coyotes, insects. But the question is: You know, are they are they are we all exploiting niches? Are we altering the niches? Are we creating something? Um, I think human beings are interesting because I think you can make an all-of-the-above argument. You know, Human beings are capable of thriving by exploiting new niches. We're capable of altering a niche to what we want it to be. And we're certainly capable of adapting plastically to whatever life throws at us. We're, 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 we're not dissimilar from rats. We find ways mm-hmm. to survive, you know, even under very, very tough conditions.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And, and part of my fascination with the Anthropocene is the fact that we are going through such a drastic shift, mm-hmm. and some of these geographic zones that we were just we were just saying and geologic zones are, are are definitely shifting. Some of them are shifting both because of human direct contact, and other ones are shifting because of just the shifting climatic zones that are happening and kind of the bands and shifting, you know, more northernly if you know in altitude or even in uh, latitude. Right. Um, and what we do to adapt that, I find pretty interesting. Well, you know, it's.
1: It's, it's, it's really interesting. I, I, I mentioned earlier I'm an optimist, um, and I think in these days you, you kind of have to both be simultaneously an extreme optimist and extreme pessimist. Um, I mean, one cannot deny the fact that, that climate change is having an, a, a, a you know, potentially existential um, uh, catastrophic effect. Um, now, you always have to qualify that, existential and catastrophic, to who? To whom? You know, to talking to, to humans, to all humans, to certain socioeconomic strata, to certain, you know, certainly to many, many organisms out there in the world, you know, we're looking at a minimum of, you know, 20 to 30 percent, you know, extinction, you know, p- potentially within 100 or 200 years. I mean, these are levels of extinction that we have not seen since, you know, giant asteroids, you know, hit hit, hit the earth and wiped out the dinosaurs and things like that. So, you know, that's huge. I mean, that's a huge, huge impact. Um, but at the same time, I, I believe that human beings can find a way to steward resources better, and you know, for the first time in human history, at least, we have the ability to recognize all the stuff that's out there, and even the stuff that we can't save. Where it is, we can save representatives of it, or at least learn about them and make sure that that information or that that species is not lost completely. And we and we, I think, have the capacity and potential to grow into a, a, a society and a and a. A super organism ourselves that can steward that stuff wi- wisely um, and and I think you know you have to be I think you have to be somewhat ideologically plastic let's u- <laughs> let's use that that theme I think you know too often human beings are very in, uh, we're, for whatever reason we are very obsessed with internal logical consistency um, and I, I uh, while I appreciate that, and and I, I, everyone likes that, I, I think it has something to do with predictability. We like it when things are predictable, and when systems are internally consistent, they're predictable. But there's no real reason why things should be, or even better, you know, if they're internally consistent. And so, for some reason, a human being wants to hear another human being say, you know, either I believe we're going to hell, or we're going to heaven, right? You know, and and the, and the complex reality is is often harder to kind of fit into that. Um, and and so, I, I think that you know, we can both have an intrinsic understanding of the value of nature and we can say, I appreciate that plant and that tree and that insect and that lizard and everything else out there for itself. And I can have a concept that says, you know, I'm not the center of the world, our species is not the center of the world and we should steward things in such a way that, you know, we try to understand that we, you know, we shouldn't be as hubristic. But I think at the exact same time, we can also say there has been no power on earth um, at least without evoking, you know, religion and and and, and um, supernatural, with as much power as human being, you know, at least conscious power that as human beings have right now, and um, and so we are in fact as as gods, you know, um, and and whether or not you find that to be an offensive concept or or, or not is, is has nothing to do with science, right? I mean, it's Catholics are very comfortable with that because. You know the Catholic Church feels that that's very consistent with the with the mythologic with our stories of the Garden of Eden and and you know God giving humans dominion and you know, stewardship over the um, the you know all of the everything on the earth right so so we're kind of comfortable with that idea um, whereas there are other religions um, and, and and philosophies that say no 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 that we're not comfortable with that at all we we view the earth quite differently it's not ours it's you know it belongs to somebody else or something else and i think that's that there's going to be a plurality of those thoughts i mean we're not going to subject somehow everybody into the same you know way of thinking about these things so you have to be able to kind of operate in all these areas and it's going to be very hard indeed to get everybody onto the same page if we insist on some kind of intellectual you know dogmatic purity for the reasons why we're willing to steward and and safeguard nature so you know i almost don't i don't care you know i'm thrilled if somebody comes to me and says that through a deep exploring of exploration of my spirituality i have come to the realize that i should we, we should care better for our plants or someone else who says i'm a hunter and I, I all I really care about is hunting deer and pheasant or something like that, but I recognize that 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 those things that I love hunting won 't be around for me to teach my kids how to hunt them if we don 't you know steward all the things that they need right in fact, that mentality you know m- most of our great conservation organizations have come out of. Of hunters, <laughs> yeah, um, and so that's very—that's uh, not a trivial, you know, thing that I'm saying. It's and it's very, also very a
0: very controversial thing that I think most people are, aren't aware of: is the fact that a lot of conservation is supported. I through think hunting.
1: it's one of those things that's very controversial amongst a certain segment of population and completely yes. uncontroversial amongst another one. And and I think one of the one of the big things that we don't talk about enough. Are, is simply the human demographic element in, in how you know how, how these things are influenced. How our conceptions of what's good or bad is influenced. And so, you know, I'm sort of I'm sort of obsessed with the fact that you know you talk about all these rapid changes, right? The, the, to me, the biggest rapid change in humanity is simply the number of people that we've added in the last two hundred years. You know, on this on this you know geometric growth curve, mm-hmm. um, and the, the way that that demographic shift has shifted the, the, the occupations and, and daily lives of human beings. Hmm. So if you go back 200 years, if you go back to 1800, just looking at the United States, you know, not only did we have way, way, way fewer people, um, you know, orders of magnitude fewer people, um, but 90% of people were farmers. And like, when I say farmers, I don't mean food prep. You know, I don't mean you know everywhere along the food chain. I mean actual farmers. That's what they were doing. They were farming in the field. Mm-hmm. And um, and here we are, 200 years later, and less than 2% of Americans are farmers, and probably only a quarter of that, about a half of, of a percentage, are what we would call economic farmers, people who derive their primary income from farming. Um, and everyone else is doing something else. And so you, you, we have... Um, and, and that's the primary thing that has allowed the proliferation of the urban environment, right? So you, know, you, go, you go back to, you know, I think, you know, I think 50% of the U.S. population be, became urbanized by something. It was just before World War II. It wasn't that long ago, right? And now we're at 80% in the United States and almost 70% worldwide, right? These massive demographic shifts of not only how many of us there are but where we are. And I think that, you know, if you grow up urban, you know, you, you're, you're, you don't hunt, And it's very easy to kind of dismiss hunting and say that that's not a necessary thing and there's no knowledge to be gained from hunting. If you grow up in a hunting environment, I can tell you from interacting with people that people who know the local botany and the local insects Mm -hmm. are almost always the hunters better than anybody else. And you know they're out there observing nature, and and, and um, so it's I think a lot of it has to do with how we've you know we have new stratifications for where we live and what we do in those places that we live, and you know that that's that's I think also driving a lot of our political differences and things like that. One hundred percent, yeah. Um, but we don't think about it all that much, just in terms of raw, like you know uh, you know what, what does this stuff mean? And um, the the, the I, there, I had this great conversation. So some some years ago. I was asked to, uh, because I, 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 we haven't talked about this much, but I do a lot of writing and I do a lot of work on how public botanic gardens, especially in urban and suburban centers. I've been enjoying this so much, I haven't got any of my questions on that, but no, keep going. Um, Can, can, can really help solve this issue, right? You know, these rural urban interface issues, you know, and one of the big ones is around agriculture, Mm -hmm. right? So, so, you know, how do we help urban people understand how agriculture functions, just you know, without being dogmatic about it, just what is agriculture? And um, I've been doing a lot of writing about that and thinking about it over the years, and uh, instituting very large exhibits and you know things like that that help people understand agriculture. And so I was asked by a by actually a biotech small biotech ag company here in San Diego if I would speak to a group of Canadian farmers that was coming down from Canada to learn about their they had happened to have a canola based technology for, for Canadians. So I said sure because I love anytime someone asks me to speak to farmers I'm pretty happy about it, especially rural farmers because it's it's you know they're Hard to find rural farmers. I mean, you you know, you, they're rural. <laughs> yeah. So if someone brings a bunch of rural farmers here into the city and says, "Can you?" It's like, yes, I'd like to go talk. Them. So I went. And I gave this talk about how, you know, I think it's very important in botanic gardens to teach about plant breeding and about these just these things that everyone finds interesting. Like people are blown away when you tell them that broccoli and cauliflower and cabbage and you know, kohlrabi. Uh, are all the same plant species that's been, you know, ad- adapted by 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 you know centuries of breeding by human populations into all these cool morphologies and, and vegetables, right? So just, I mean, basic stuff like that. So I gave a talk like that, you know, nothing controversial, and it was great, you know. And the farmers were just like, "Oh, it's so cool!" You know, we love this because the farmers love what they do. I mean, like, you know, agree or disagree with how they do it, they they have pride in what they do. And and this one farmer was very kind of, I could see he was very consternated after the talk, and he came up to me afterwards. He was a you know, quiet you know, kind of stereotypical, what you would expect from a Canadian plains farmer, you know, from Saskatchewan, you know, growing, growing, a, you know, I don't know how many acres, but probably about 30 or 40,000 acres of canola, you know, and rotating it with, you know, whatever he's rotating it with. And he said to me, you know, I appreciate everything you're talking about, and it's really helpful. He goes, but I don't know how we're going to solve this problem. He goes, it's not just what you've talked about. And he, and he, and he, and he starts talking about how his own daughter has so rejected the way in which he does agriculture, you know, he because by every way you would shake it, he's a he's he's a somebody called a conventional factory farmer. You know, he's got mm-hmm. big tractors and big monocrop lands and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and 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 his, his 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 daughter has gone so far as to say that you know she's ashamed and that she thinks that that, that family business is evil, you know. And and he. And we had a really interesting conversation. I mean, I, you know, I, I, he he feels that, you know, he understands where she's coming from, why she would say that, but he also thinks that if you look further into the issue, you realize that very intensive farming is actually one of the important pathways to sustainability because mm-hmm. it, it it means you don't have to farm everywhere. It means there are lands that you can keep out of farming, um, and, and there are some other, you know, benefits. But it's a complicated thing. But But his big real problem was not that she felt that anything they did might be wrong, he felt that it was great if, if, if younger generations see problems in what we're doing and, and try to develop ways to, to fix them and improve them, but more that it was conceived of in a very black and white, evil and, and, and you know, good and evil you know, sense. And that that, that, you know, that kind of floored me. I didn't really have, I, you know, I didn't know what to say. I mean, all I could say, I sort of, I sort of put on my educator hat and all I said was, look, we, all we can do is provide people with good information. But we, you know, if, if you're trying to convince them to have different values than they have, now you're in the world of propaganda and dogma and no longer in the world of, of what we typically think of as education in a, in a democratic society. And so there's a big conundrum there. There's a big tension. And um, you know, that's, that's a, it's, it's interesting. It's very interesting.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I, lean, I lean very heavily on the Stoics and philosophy in, in that sense. And I, I really agree a lot with Socrates' Um, wisdom is the solution to everything, and the only way to get wisdom is through cu- curiosity, mm-hmm. um, and that's part of why I'm doing this. And I, I think that 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 what you could do in the Botanic Gardens is spark curiosity. Like right. when I was thinking about this interview, I was I, I always like to reflect back on my life because it's always easier to get yourself in a space of of curiosity. I suppose now that I'm saying it. Um, if you try to reflect in your own life experiences and one of my younger memories was going to the Chicago Botanic Gardens, uh, conference that was in Navy pier and it was like in the atrium there and it was just awe inspiring how many different species of flowers, the flowers were, were, were what got me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and I didn't, I didn't know at the time, but now reflecting back, I'm colorblind, right? I'm red and green colorblind. Oh, wow. So going somewhere and seeing all these vivid colors in plants, you know, in my adult eyes looking back was probably the first time that I was able to see cl- plants that to me look so vivid, right? Because yeah. like growing up in the Midwest, like not everybody would plant really, you know, bright tulips or whatever, right? Like it's not something that someone would invest in spending money to do every year, right? Right. right. Um, so going there, like really just kind of blew my mind as to what the variety of everything is and, and all of that. Um, but I, I really think the only way out is curiosity. I mean, I think you have to have that. And I think of a lot of what I appreciate of what you're doing here and, and a lot of what I was reading in um, coming up to this is is trying to do that, trying to use, like, there's this pinwheel here I have of using botanic gardens. I think this is from one of your infographics, actually. Yeah. Uh, of Research, horticulture, recreation, education, and outreach, and having botanic gardens in the center of that. I think that that's really great. Um, and, I mean, just to go back to that conversation, that's really interesting, uh, some of the things you said that I... So I live with my grandparents in uh, a small town in Illinois called Morris. And we lived in this like century old farmhouse for, uh, and then it's surrounded by cornfields. And at the time it was so awe inspiring. Cause it's just like, mm-hmm. Oh my God, this is so I'm, like, I can't, I can't imagine how amazing and difficult it was to make these lines so straight and to like, you know, they all, it all just looks like corn. There's nothing else there. You know what I mean? Uh, it really kind of blew my mind. And now I'm in this strange place of trying to sort out my feelings on it. Cause I understand, like I've consulted in the industry um, I understand what agriculture is and big factory farming agriculture, and I understand like you know, Borloff and his great you know leaps forward in humanity. and and I, I've read this as well in some of your publications of i I don't remember exactly the percentages you have know, probably correct me of how much our population has grown, but we've only needed what three percent more land to or some small so we mo- in,
1: in most we I think we are net we have estimates are that we reached peak farmland. Maybe somewhere between 10 and 30 years ago. Right. So it, we we appear to be maintaining. It's different for each crop in different region of the world, but we are. We have we have especially since World War II, we have been on a very fast track of of um, of crop yield improvement, and that has that has has stayed above the slope of that improvement um, line has stayed above. The slope of the human population increase line. So a big part of why we have not had the mass starvation that that was it was predicted that we would have in the '40s right. and '50s. And Borlaug, who you mentioned, was you know he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970 um, as an agricultural scientist, really for you know uh, saying to the uh, elites in in countries all over the world. Um, and and funding organizations all over the world, like, you know, we cannot go quietly into the night on this. We mm-hmm. can't let we can't let hundreds of millions of people starve, and that he thought that, you know, the application of agricultural science would would, would help with that. And um, and when he won the Nobel Prize in nineteen seventy, um the, the, the Nobel Prize committee estimated that he he his work, you know, and he was very humble about it and said, you know, it was, it was thousands of people, you know, he just was the figurehead. But the work that's attributed to him and his team saved a 1 billion, with a B, people from starvation and, and they had really only started working in the 50s. Right. You know, that wasn't like, you know, something he did in over the next 500 years. And so there, there's an argument that he may have be, been the greatest humanitarian of all time when you look at, at lives, you know, sort of saved you know, from preventable you know, uh, death and, and starvation is a very terrible way to die. So, um, or, or lack of, you know, it's, starvation is not a, most people don't die from acute starvation. They right. die from slowly becoming malnourished and getting horrible diseases and, you know, it's really awful. So, um, you know, he, he, he proved that, uh, and they did it, and they did it by a combination of many different technologies. Um, and, and, you know, the way they did breeding, shuttle breeding, the way that they innovated using certain kinds of genetics, and in, in his case, for wheat in particular, uh, dwarfing genes, um, as well as um, uh, disease resistance genes you know very important stuff and nobody talks about that stuff now because it's very uncontroversial but the part of it it's been
0: that all,
1: if you will well it's but it's fundamental you know it's so important yes uh, um, but the part of it that's very controversial and, and what gets associated with what he called the green revolution he was, was his sort of mm-hmm. we were creating a green revolution um, farming revolution so that people wouldn't be starving and a lot of it economically was about people moving from subsistence farming to having enough to sell, so that the, the farmers themselves were not in poverty, even though they were producing food. And, and it's important to note that Borlaug himself grew up a, a, on a very, very poor subsistence farm in Iowa, and um, and so he he always talked about the importance of, of he was motivated to move things forward, and he was able to connect with farmers in other parts of the world because he he experienced exactly what they were going through, and his family did. And um, and he said, you know, he said, I always remembered what hunger felt like. You know, to be truly hungry. And it happened. You know, he, during the Depression and things like that, he, he, they didn't always have enough food. And
0: um, anyway, so. I know that about him. I've I've read about him a lot. I didn't know that. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, there's a great, one of my favorite biographies of his is is, uh, written by a guy named Noel Vietmeyer. Um, and, and, and they knew each other, and no Meyer was a writer for the National Academy of Sciences and uh, interviewed Borlaug many, many times during his life, you know, and, and, and there's a long three-volume version and there's a condensed version as well, but he goes through a lot of the early history. I'm going to check that out. Um, so, so anyway, the thing that we talk about a lot with Borlaug is, of course, sort of the part of it that led to monocrop cropping and a lot of chemical fertilizer. And uh, you know Borlaug initially was very focused on Mexico, and at the time in Mexico where he was working there, and he was mainly working for you know big foundations like the Ford Foundation. Um, Mexico was not food secure. Mexico was importing food from the United States, um, and you know now Mexico is a very food secure country. And a lot of it was because they weren't, they didn't have very good yields on wheat, and later on also also corn, um, and they start, but they started with wheat, and um, what what. What one of the, like I said, there's a mil- there was many traits that they were working on, disease resist- and they were successful with of them, dwarfing genes, you know, all this kind of stuff. But they also selected varieties of, of, you know, they created new varieties of wheat that were more responsive to what we would now call agricultural chemicals, you know, and, and in particular nitrogen fertilizer, um, which was in great abundance and very cheap because nitrogen fertilizer is essentially TNT. You know, so the, 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 the great munitions factories of the world um, that formed between World War I and World War II, after World War II, had really perfected making cheap nitrogen um, in a form that it turns out it can be exploded, and it, that's pretty much the same form that plants can use, ammonium, and, um, wow. and, and so that, beca- that was a very cheap commodity, and mm-hmm. so if you were somebody looking to, um, to stave off you know, starvation, you, you know, you're like, well, I can get this stuff, right? It's a lot of these, it's, that wasn't very deep. The thought process that's like I, we can get this okay. in huge quantities, and it turbocharges the crops. But we need the crop varieties that are that are responsive to it. And so that that you know that ushered in an age of of, of, of breeding plants to be very responsive to, to, to this turbocharging, right? Um, and there's been a lot of problems, you know, a lot of pollution and other problems that have resulted in um, you know from from having all of this fertilizer applied onto onto fields. Um, and not to mention that. Um, Nitrogen fertilizer in itself is very highly dependent on the fossil fuel industry because it's pretty much made from natural gas going through what's called the Haber Bosch process, um, and that's also very simplified because it's not just nitrogen; it's phosphorus and potassium and other you know things, and those are mostly mined minerals. Those are not um, you know sort of conjured out of air from right. from um, from from with fossil fuel you know, energy, um, but we are surrounded mostly by nitrogen <laughs> that's inaccessible to us. So it's about right. getting that into an accessible form. So um, But Borlaug is very much kind of sort of remembered for being this person who spurred the agricultural system worldwide into large monocultural farms, heavily dependent on on chemical inputs. Um, But ironically, he's also one of the people most responsible for... The, for diminishing the amount of chemical, impu, impu, um, uh, chemical inputs on farms for disease control because he really got disease resistance on a genetic level happening so that you didn't need to use as many fungicides and things like that. So it's very complicated. In addition, Borlaug himself, and, and at his Nobel, um, speech prize accept, and that Nobel Prize acceptance speech, talked about all of the problems that were going to come. He, t- he talked about the solutions that they developed as Band-Aids. He's like, look, everyone was going to die. So we've made it so that they didn't die, but we have not solved the other problems of the world. Wow! And, and oh, he was, he was, you know, he was really, uh, you know, and nobody listened to, to him very much on that. And he talked about it. It's really interesting. If you go back to the speech, he, 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 if I remember properly, he was mentioning specifically in 1970 commodity prices were low. And he was talking about how whenever commodity prices are low, nobody cares about agriculture. Right? You can't, none, of, none of the funders give money, the, the government. If, and if they care at all, it's about propping up the prices because the problem is that the farmers are going out of business and having problems because they just can't earn enough right. money even if they have bumper crops, right? And he said people only care about agriculture in the years where, where, the, where the prices are high. And, um, and he said, and everything is wrong because when the prices are high is actually when the farmers are doing best. And, but poor people are, do, do worse because they can't afford to buy their crop. Um, but people start getting involved in how to do agriculture when prices are high because there's more money to be made, right? But when prices are low, nobody gets involved because th- then it's only the farmer's welfare who's, who's, who's negatively impacted. And he kind of talked about all these all, all problems like that, all these, these mismatches in, in the signals for when society should be dealing with agriculture and how wrong they were and how they, you know, the, you know the. What we were paying attention to was not the stuff that was going to help. He talked about over reliance. He talked about uh, on, on, on small numbers of crop species. He talked about uh, depleting the world's topsoils, and I mean, you know, all all oh yeah, all of that stuff. Um, but it's interesting how our collective memory has filtered that into, you know, something actually quite different than what it than what it was. And um, and I, you know, some people say, oh well, there were unintended consequences. And they go, no, no, they were not unintended. They were intended, and they were understood, and it was. Look, either we do these things that we know will be bad or people will die, mm-hmm. but we're going to talk about it and say, hey, we can't keep doing them this way. As we get stability, we have to evolve into more enlightened and, and, and smarter ways of doing this. And, and we, you know, depending on who you are, you, you could argue that we did that quite well. In fact, you know, the, the, to have gone from an insecure food system post-World War II where we were projecting hundreds of millions if not billions of deaths to a place where really the only famine that exists today is because of economic or um, political strife. At that time, you have to remember, there really wasn't enough food to feed everybody. I mean, just, mm-hmm. they, they wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, if we move the food here or there, it's enough, no, there, there really was a gap. There was not enough food to feed everybody. Now there is enough food to feed everybody And where people are starving, it's because of of other challenges. Um, But we also have tremendous environmental challenges associated with with feeding food, and that's been exacerbated, again, by population increase. Um, you You know, as smart as you can be, in fact, a lot of the solutions we deploy today, if we were deploying them on the same amount of land for the same population as existed in nineteen sixty or nineteen seventy, the problems wouldn't be nearly as severe as they are today, just because we wouldn't we wouldn't have to do it on as much land as we have. So anyway, all of this is to say that, you know, we miss we we tend to co-opt history into the narratives that we're trying to talk about today. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. But one of the things that we talk about in our chapter that you referenced earlier in the Anthropocene book is that Humanity is having a hard time, right? When we, when, we, when we try to look at these agricultural problems and, and get too kind of process-oriented and say, oh, you know, GMOs are bad mm-hmm. or monocrop is bad, agroforestry is good, um, you know, that, 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 that's really not helpful because it's not context-dependent. GMOs are good sometimes and bad sometimes. They're just tools, Right? Um, agroforestry works in some places it doesn't work in other places you know, polyculture is great in some places it doesn't work in other places Right? Um, another thing that I love talking about is um, I kind of stole this from a political scientist named Ron Herring to paraphrase he's a Cornell, he's a Cornell professor um, but, uh, uh, agriculture is highly heterogeneous in space and time so you can do the exact same thing in one place, and it, the different things happen somewhere else, and you can do the exact same thing in the same place in a different year, and different things happen. And, and it's, it's true. I mean, that's really, really true. And so, you know, it, it's not quite as, as, as... It's not to say it's not deterministic, but it's very co- complicated and stochastic. So um, what we propose in the book chapter is that, you know, where we're having the sort of non-expert societal conversations, right, where it's not about a techno democratic kind of a you know, decision-making process and conversation, but where it's really societal you know, democratic decision-making, we would be much smarter if instead of talking about what technologies and what ideologies we, we think should be utilized to, to solve agricultural problems, if instead we would focus on what are the goals and, and, and frame those goals in an inclusive manner right, it, to, to encompass the things that we care the most about. So, you know, so so I like to kind of pull back with people when I can, right? If people are having a big argument about, oh, I, you know, everything has to be organic or it can't be GMO or it's it's no everything should be lentils. And lentils the best crap, you know. Um, and some people I love love lentils and so talk about that very very publicly. Um, and I, I got no, I love lentils too, but it's just you know, I'm not only going to grow lentils everywhere. You know, it's like soylent and green is the answer, right? Yeah, you know? right, right. Um, it's like, what are you really trying to accomplish, right? And then if somebody's able to pull back and say, well, here's what I want. Right, I want, I want to produce enough food. I want the farmers to be able to earn a living and have a nice culture and a nice life. I want enough choice at the consumer level that we can have healthy, nourishing food and, and that you know, everybody can eat and eat well. I want that to happen on a, on, on a land mass, and a land area that doesn't destroy the environment. Mm-hmm. I want the chemical inputs to, be, to not cause you know, all these problems. And I want the chemical outputs to not cause all these problems. And I go, great. Let us enumerate all of these things, right? There's no substitution for setting what your goals are. And, the, and they're going to be complicated on, on something as big as agriculture, which, as we talked about, is currently consuming th- a third of the entire land mass of the planet. There's nothing we do as extensively as we do agriculture. I mean, if you think there's problems with mining and petroleum extraction, agriculture is, is a bigger nut to crack in terms of at least land mass that it's, that it's done on. Um, and, and broad numbers of people, too, that are involved in it, right? It's the, it's the most common, it's still the most common profession in the world, right? Um, that you, ha- you have to go through the big list. What are, what are the things you want to have happen? And then it doesn't become an ideological battle about what technology is better or worse. It becomes a, techno- a technocratic conversation about how are those technologies going to be deployed to meet these goals. And recognizing that in one place it's going to be a different mix than in another place. It's a different kind of conversation. Now, most people don't want to have that conversation for some reason. And so then I ask the question of, well, if you don't want to have that conversation, why are you engaged in this conversation to begin with? Is, is, do you really care about agriculture and agricultural productivity and the farm workers and everybody else? Or is there some other bigger thing going on in the world and that you think that this, the agricultural space is a good place to have that argument? you know, so is, it, is this a proxy war for you? Do you really care about, you know, how democratic or capitalist or socialist or progressive or, you know... Insert ideology here. Whatever. And this is what that looks like on this front. And my response to something like that is agriculture is too important to let be subsumed by the ideological cha- you know, crisis du jour. Now, it's always been the case that we've let it be that because we're humans and that's what happens. But we are getting to these tipping points within the biosphere. We are getting to places where we may, we we will, at some point, when it comes, is harder to figure out. But in the next 50 to 75 years, it's likely that some areas of of, of, of biogeochemical cycling will heavy, heavily tilt. You know, and whether it's the nitrogen cycle or the water cycle or the carbon cycle, you know, it, it remains to be seen. Maybe all of the above, right? Um, and that will make things very, very difficult, at least in certain places, and and. Um, so we're getting close to that. So, so being inefficient in our ability to solve these problems because we're more obsessed with being right about a specific ideology um, is a very, very, I think, unforgivable form of conceit because somebody will pay later. And it's usually not going to be the discussants of that conversation. And my historical analog to this conversation are vaccines. Right, so Jenner developed the smallpox vaccine in the very, very late 1700s. Right, um, and we do not have the widespread de- um, deployment of vaccines until World War II. Right, so you have well over 150 years of of availability of, tech, of life-saving technology, in this case, the form of a smallpox vaccine, um, and then in the intervening years, more and more, you know, vaccines against chemical diseases. You have literally tens to hundreds of millions of deaths that happened in that period of time because society felt that it was not yet ready to embrace the technology and 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 the same language that was used at the time by the church of england by natural philosophers all these people about the unnaturalness of the smallpox vaccine and subsequent vaccines which you hear echoed today in the the anti-vaccine movement um, were strong enough to keep these things societally out of yeah, and people died. I mean, you can go and measure. You can measure the tens, if not hundreds of millions of people who died horrible premature deaths from smallpox and other transmissible diseases when the technology existed that they didn't have to, that that didn't have to happen. So this is not academic, right? And it's not lifestyle. It's not like, "Oh, okay, they didn't get their cell phones or, you know, whatever, right?" I mean, as, as, I mean, cell, I shouldn't minimize cuz cell phones can be life-saving technology too. But it's very direct, right? Nobody nobody wants a cure for a disease as a as a cosmetic. Or, or you know, or a vogue kind right. of a thing. Food's a little tough because food has an artistic and um, cultural transmission element to it as well. But I do think that, that the vaccine debate, the early vaccine debate that started in the time of Jenner and per- per- proceeded all the way to World War II and, you know, and now has its own new incarnation, I think that that is the, the, the best historical analogy for um, a bad way to look at technological debate around agriculture. And there's nothing special about the late 1700s, right? I mean, there was, the, the, you know, the, the tech, you know, the, 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 there there was no agricultural revolution in the late 1700s. There was also no chemical revolution, you know. That all kind of came later. So that, you know, the vaccine technology itself a little bit predates the industrial revolution and a bunch of other things. So it was, you know, a true scientific discovery. And um, I think it, it's very it's very instructive. It's very important for us to look at events like that and 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 you know like you talked about earlier, you know, really think deep and hard about how do we value things? Do we value mm-hmm. things based on the needs of today, based on the needs of, of the past, the norms of the past, the norms of today? Um, and, then, and then further pull out and say, okay, you know, all this ideology, is, it's important. Humans have ideology and values, but what's the pragmatic consequence of that? And, and I think that's where we fall down a lot on the agriculture debate, and, and it feels to all sides of the debate like people are just constantly moving goalposts. And and, it, and it's, it's that way because nobody is actually sitting down and saying, here are the goals. Uh, Borlaug did a pretty good job of that. Now, people fought him all the time. I mean, if you read his biography, you'll hear that, you know, even the very funding agencies that funded him, the, 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 the people within the funding agency who thought Borlaug's work was worthwhile, were constantly fighting off other people within the funding agencies being like, oh, well, you know, all those hundreds of millions of people are going to die anyway in those mm. countries. Like, why are we, you know, we we got other things we can put this money to. And they weren't bad people. They were like, I, I think the money is better spent in infectious diseases or in, you know, uh, 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 domestic abuse or, you know, uh, decreasing chances for warfare, you know, things like that. I mean, it's not like they were like, well, let's use the money to go play mini golf. Um, it's, you know, they, they were reasonable. But it was hard. It was it was very hard for, for Borlaug and others to convince people that. The, and even with success, then people said. So it worked in Mexico, and they said, "Well, nobody will accept these technologies in India because they might have to accept a slightly different color of, you know, their you know, of naan or you know their bread." And they said they won't do that. They only will use this kind. And and Borlaug said, "If they're hungry, I think that they will." Right. And and he and you know th- there was a great scientist in India named named Swaminathan, Dr. Swaminathan, who's still alive. Um, and um, uh, he won the first ever world food prize for his work, and he he agreed with Borlaug, and he said, "No, our farmers deserve a chance mm-hmm. at least at least the option about whether or not they want to take on a little bit of technology and change a little bit it, and if it 's really life and death, they might be willing and of course that was that was overwhelmingly right um, and uh, it 's a very interesting phenomenon to see how these values percolate through the system and how easy it is. for for human beings in positions of authority and power, you know, or at least relative comfort, to dismiss the ability of technology to change things for the better based pretty purely on judgment and ideology?
0: I think, uh a throughput on that i've mentioned a few times in this show is comfort i think is the is a great throughput of all like you know culture the cultural geography that is homo sapiens i think comfort is overwhelmingly one in which you can find a lot of throughput throughout all of them and i think like to your point about commodity prices we're comfortable with the price that they're at right now we don't see the value in going it further Um, and i think that that's there's some truth to that and i mean I, i think there's a lot of points here that we hit upon there as actually a pretty big throughput in them in which like okay so like Borlaug said look this is what's going to happen but we need to save the sinking ship we're going to save the sinking ship and by doing so we're going to create more moral and economic and soci- sociological conundrums that are going to come from it and we're going to need to rise to that occasion but we get comfortable because of the comfort of of his technologies that brought and now we're kind of learning the lessons that he's you know taught the, the hard way or you know I think in everything. Well Everything again I think,
1: timing, right? I think I think that we our memory I, I'll just I'll give a just a little customer service example right okay. so I, you know I run a botanic garden right we have about 200,000 visitors per year at this botanic park and we aim to please our customers our customers are the people who come here um, it's a it's a visitor experience you know but we we're a nonprofit that want this visitor experience to also be educational and transformative in the way you talked about seeing flowers and the diversity Mm -hmm. of flowers in Chicago. That's that's what we're trying to create, that experience in every young kid. We think Mm -hmm. every kid should have the opportunity to have that kind of experience that you had, and I had similar experiences as well. Um, But we have customers, so we're very customer service oriented, right? And, like, I I know, logically, in my brain, I know that I see a hundred times, if not more... Positive comments about the garden than negative comments. People writing to us all the time on social media. i Love visiting the garden. Oh, I brought my kids. It was the best day. Oh, during COVID and and, and this crisis, it's a place of respite and health. And it was just, you know, I mean, boku, boku, wonderful things to say. We've got, we've even done formal surveys, and we can't find somebody who says something negative. Everyone's grateful that you know for what's happening at this place. But you know, every once in a while, you know, we get a phone call or something that says I'm dissatisfied, and I can tell you, I obsess over that. It's, it's almost like the other stuff didn't happen, even though I logically know it's there, emotionally I am just fixated on the ne- – I've I got to fix that, right? That, nobody can have a bad experience here, That's, you know, I, don't, I don't want that, right? And so I think we all do that, right? I think that you know, we look back on the history and, 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 and Borlaug and that whole period of Green Revolution and, we, we, and yes, there are all of these things that we we're dealing with now that were spurred by that that are, that are bad. But if we looked really soberly and you looked at all of the technological innovation that happened and what it enabled and what we still use today, you know, how, we, we spray very, very little fungicide in the United States, in the world, actually, quite frankly, because you know, we are really good at breeding for, 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 for fungal resistance now. Right, which is a completely benign. There's no, there's no environmental impact to, to solving that as a breeding problem instead of solving it as a chemical, you know, input problem. And there's a million examples that are like that. And you could enumerate them all. And you could and you could, you know, probably say, you know what, you know, and and again, very heavy in the pro column is a billion, at least a billion people just in the years between 1950 and 1970 were saved from starvation because of these technologies. So. You know you know it's, it's just it's just really incorrect to think of this as only negative stuff can, like, like okay, we, 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 uh, we, we put on the band-aid, but then we never took off the band-aid and did physical therapy to get us into a healthy state. Right. That's also an incorrect analogy. It's much, much more complicated than that. The, we put on the band-aid. Parts of the band-aid were perfect, and so we mm-hmm. still use them. Other parts were not, and we discarded them and moved on, and other parts we did stick with for various mm-hmm. reasons, um, and, we, and we still need to deal with them. And, and, um, you know, but for some reason, we want to make a morality play out of the whole thing, and, and I've, you know, it's, it's, I think at least in the realm of technology adoption, the morality play is a very highly destructive force. And to analogize again you know and you said your, your your earlier you told me that your wife is involved in nutrition and things like that i think that that actually the most destructive space for, in the morality play is in human nutrition and if you look at the way in which people and and human disease people are blamed for their diseases right you get cancer oh they they, they whatever they, they they lived you know was closer to a factory than somebody else. i mean everybody wants there to be a reason that's based on a moral understanding for why things happen, so that if somebody has to suffer, they must have kind of done something to to, to, um, to, to, to deserve that. And if somebody who's fat, it's because they're lazy, not because of some other kind of problem. And somebody who, I mean, it's, it, in everything we do, if somebody is, you know, a woman is sexually assaulted and she was asking for it with the way she dressed or something like that, we reduce everything to these really destructive morality plays, and they prevent us from dealing with the real issue. They make it easy for us to say that, well, there's, we don't have a problem of a of a male, you know, a sexual abuser. We have a problem of a of a woman temptress, which is crazy, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, and it's the same. I think it's the same thing in all these areas. We oh, we don't have a problem with uh, with, with, with the, the way people eat food. We have a problem with that they don't exercise enough, or we don't, you know, it's like you don't know that. And, and there's not and the If you really look at the science, it's not clear. You know, these things that are being said, right? It, it, agriculture is the exact same way. We, we you know scientists present this mountain of scientific data that point out to like for example. There's all this new research coming out showing that some of the best topsoil um, uh, 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 creation rates are happening in genetically modified agricultural fields.
0: Hmm.
1: No, <laughs> right? There's interesting reasons for why that is. And you go, hey, maybe genetic modification is actually a good thing for soil, uh, st- you know, um, sustain- soil sustainability. Yeah. And people are just like, you can't even talk about that. Right. It's just, it, because it, it doesn't fit, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's such a problem because that's how the world really works you know some things that that we conceive of as evil will be good sometimes and, and bad other times and and we're just we're we're constantly in our desire to moralize all this stuff pulling ourselves away from possible pragmatic solutions that that you know that 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 might work out really well and just to kind of what you know what you know both sides in this whole thing but it's still true, right? I'm, I'm, I don't want it to come off like I'm anti-moral structure. I said, I, we started this conversation by talking about how science itself is a shallow epistemology. Mm-hmm. It does not provide moral understanding. So I think that the, where the balance is, is that people need to agree on what's this higher level moral thing, right? Like, like I think most people agree, no matter other stuff, that we should preserve nature in some way, shape, or form, in a pretty significant way, shape, or form. I, you know, I love the E.O. Wilson idea of a half earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and and his idea is sort of a recycled version of Carl Woese's idea. This was more he was about a third Earth, you know, for nature. Um, and, you know, Carl Woese was a one of the great great microbiologists of our time, and um, or he's dead now, but of the previous generation. And you know, Wilson, same thing. Amazing biologist, and he's you know, let's just preserve half the Earth, you know, you know, just let's preserve it. These things are great and I think most people would be like, that's a great idea because of the value. It's about you know, preserving these things that we can all enjoy and the, the lungs and the heart and the planet and all that kind of stuff. And then it gets hard because how do you do that, right? Because that, that, that we're not doing that right now. And so we, you know if, you, if every conversation that you're going to have that's going to be tough because some mine is going to have to close and people have a livelihood there and they've built a culture around that place and if you, you know if they, we've decided that this is going to be one of the sanctuaries where we preserve nature, people are going to lose something. You know, instead of fighting them and being like, you know, you're immoral for still being in the mining business, which most of those people probably had no choice Mm -hmm. in what they're in, you you instead reaffirmed the shared commitment to values and said, remember, we all decided we have to, we want to do this. We agree we want to do this. And wow, we're going to have to ask some people to do some really, really hard things. And now you come from a position of empathy. Okay, you who are going to be negatively impacted by this change that we think is required, what can we do to soften that blow? What can we do to preserve your dignity, your way of living, your you know your culture, you know whether that's an indigenous group or a, you know or, or or a guild of professionals or whatever it is, um, you know because these because th- things have to change, you know how do we how do we frame them so that we're not cutting off pragmatic you know opportunities to fix it, and we're leading with empathy, right? I mean th- and and I think you know. We haven't learned how to do this yet. You know, we talked earlier in our conversation as well about, you know, all of this is all of what we're struggling with in society is a, is a struggle with how to communicate in this complex world. And and um, I think that that you know is one of the great 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 challenges. We've learned a lot. Um, you know, there's a lot of literature on mainly from the fishing literature shared, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, fishing rights, you know, that's been a big deal. And the EU has been very active in that area where when they've created fishing quotas and, you know, Spanish communities in particular, you know, where a lot of, you know, fishing vessels leave from have been negatively impacted. They've, you know, created opportunities to, you know, retrain and, you know, you know, they've sort of acknowledged that they're taking away livelihoods and that that has to be dealt with. Now, it hasn't always worked well, you know, I mean, people don't want, you know, in, this, in the same way that in, you know, think about all the you know, England in the 1970s and 80s and, you know, the prices of, of, um, of, of, of you know, when all the coal mining and milling mm-hmm. and whatnot were leaving England and the whole working class was getting hollowed out, you know, that was a horrible, horrible thing, you know, that, that led to all kinds of horrible social strife. Um, and it pushed some people far to the left and some people far to the right, you know. Um, and we're seeing in the Appalachian now, even. We're seeing in Appalachia now. And so, how, you know, how do we do, deal with that? And it... And it It bothers me that that sometimes you come across environmentalists who are very quick to say, well, you know, who who are very quick to want to control reproductive rights. You know, oh, people shouldn't be allowed to have children anymore. There's just too many of us. And it's like, that's true. There are a lot of us and it causes problems. But let's think pretty deeply about the idea of, I mean, do you still want to live in a democracy? Because cutting off reproductive rights and and, and decision making, that's a big deal. and, and, I, and i i don't know how you could morally justify that even under an environmental you know catastrophe framework right and uh, I, and we're quick to do that oh well you know it, it's kind of like oh those those appalachian coal miners are getting what they deserve for being appalachian coal miners right you know you know that's that's that, i don't i don't know that that's going to be helpful and and i think in fact it's very negative and it actually increases the amount of time it takes to finally get on the same page you know and and Uh, tribalism is a terrible and horrible thing and uh, we we need to find a way to rise above it but but equally I feel that way about sciences I I am very annoyed by scientists who when somebody gives a values-based reason for doing something says the science doesn't agree with you Hmm. so if somebody says I'm you know anti abortion that is fundamentally a non-scientific conversation right Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, you know and you can engage in it. You know, he, here's a bunch of reasons why you know why, why somebody might be pro pro choice. You know, um, but you're not going to say, well, science conclusively says that human beings right. should be, you know,
0: X Y and X, Z. X Y and Z. Yep. You know,
1: because science doesn't tell you about the value system. And um, um, I think I think a lot of, and unfortunately, there are some you know scientists in the public you know you know you know sphere who Use the, you know their status as scientists to try to push moral you know uh, uh, you know moral things that, that that are couched as science. I have no problems with scientists getting up there as individuals and saying hey I morally believe X Y and Z. Um, and and it's, uh, there's some great examples of that. I think Francis Collins you know who's the leader of the National Institute of Health and you know right. ha- he's a great geneticist who happens to also be a devout Catholic is a, is a great exemplar you know where he's really advancing the best possible science. And also, you know, talks very, you know, um, personally about his faith um, and how he reconciles things that don't always match in a way that's not, it's not, it's neither preachy on the religious side, nor is it, say, oh, well, the scientific stuff takes precedence. And, you know, where, where my religious values disagree with science, I always go with science. He doesn't say that either, right? So, you know, we need more people who are, you know, really good at... Um, at, at, at doing that, um, and here in San Diego uh, at, at Scripps, um, you know Ram, uh, the great climate scientist there, he's another one who's like that. You know, hmm. he's a devout uh, Hindu, and um, you know he's he's really interested in going and talking to communities of faith f- faith about climate science. Wow.
0: but I'm he, not familiar with him. I to, uh, Oh,
1: I'll, I'll I'll turn you on to him. He's great. And he, yeah, he's an award-winning climate scientist, and um, he you know he he recognizes, I think, as a person who comes from a very strong community of faith, that. I don't want to put words in this mouth, but my, my understanding is that, you know, people, people do not get their moral understandings of the world from science. Mm-hmm. They get it from their communities. And many of those communities are organized around tradition and religion. And you need to go into those communities and talk to them on those terms um, to have to, to, to if you know if you really want to to dialogue.
0: You know, I uh, I fancy myself a bit of a classicist, and uh, I think some of the, the best things that I have gotten from the classic world is the fact that human beings are, are narrative storytelling individuals. And I think if you look at the great individuals and you know really truly extraordinary individuals of our species, they were almost always great storytellers or had people around them that were, right? Because I think that we really, we, we understand things when you can kind of come into that space of consciousness where I'm allowing you to think for me and I'm allowing you to have um, elicit an emotional response, response within me. And I think a lot of the tribalism we get now is in the sense, almost a hacking of that, right? Like a, what? I think tribalism is, I, my, if I if I had to say what my personally idea, personal ideology is, uh, I think I have to steal from Bruce Lee and the fact that I say that I have an ideology of no ideology, <laughs> right? I want to steal from the best of everything and find a way to create that into my own story so that I understand it, right? Which is an intensely individual, you know, study which is incredibly alone almost in a sense, but through that you're able to find like-minded individuals and build your own type of moral compass, which then you get use as your framework from the outside of the world. And just like these individuals you're saying where, well, how can you be two things that, uh, you know, exist in contradiction to each other? And I, I have to quote Walt Whitman and say, Oh, you say that I disagree with myself. Well, that's okay. I, I exist in multitudes. Right. right. And, uh, I, I, if you ask me what my definition of truth is, I'd have to say it either doesn't exist or it exists only in the space you allow it to exist in incongruency with multiple contradicting aspects because think all things are all things an incentive over here is the right. dissentive over here um and and i think a lot of what i i really like that you've been saying through this is you know we have an incredible challenge ahead of us and and you know the tipping point is coming when it's coming where it's coming from we don't know but the best thing that we could do is prepare be open-minded and really try to uh, Ask as many questions of why as possible, and,
1: and I also think to, to to steel ourselves against the tendency. You know, if, if we are going to go into a very challenging moment in human history, you know, which I, I think we are, you know, many fibers of our being will, you know, not without reason, be telling us to more narrowly look at our own welfare and our and our immediate you know community, our family, and those closest to us. Right? We will cease to be. As good citizens of larger jurisdictions, whether that's the state, the nation, the hemisphere, or the world, um, and I think we need to resist that. And and I don't say that in an ideological way. I say that in a very pragmatic way. You know, looking at the times in history where people have allowed um, their concerns to become parochial um, has allowed a lot of other suffering to happen. Right, um, and. And, and, and we don't want to be accused of that, mm-hmm. right? I, I don't want to be accused by history of being part of a, you know, society of people that didn't let, you know, smallpox, pa- people be vaccinated against smallpox and, and have had better lives. Mm-hmm. You know, so, somebody bears the responsibility. In fact, large groups of people bear the responsibility of not leveraging available technologies that would have made people's lives better, um, you know, at that time, and, and here we have this multitude of technologies, and we constantly deal with the challenges of, well, I can't make that technology available because it doesn't meet economic criteria. You know, I It's not possible to do profitably, you know, um, or, or I won't ideologically accept that technology, or... Uh, it's not my problem, so I don't care about that technology. You know, it's 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 operating. You know, the people who have this problem are a different tribe than mine, right? There's, we have all these reasons and rationale for not using the tools. And sometimes I wish we didn't have the word technology. I wish we would just say tool. Mm-hmm. Just I agree tools. with that. Yeah. And and the and the I ha, I'm surprised I haven't said this in our conversation yet. But what I always one of the first things I try to say whenever you know, people want to talk about GMOs all the time. That's like people's favorite topic. And um, you know, first of all, I always say I'm not pro or anti GMO. It's a tool, and, and it may or may not be the right tool depending on, the, you know, what you're trying to do. And and the analogy there, and I apologize for all this reasoning by analogy, but it is useful. Um,
0: I, back to my storytelling thing. It's I think It's storytelling. Useful. I think it's useful. Go
1: ahead. Um, is that, you know, it's a tool. It's a hammer, right? Mm-hmm. And what can I do with a hammer? I can build somebody a house. No, no more noble test than that. I can, you know, knock their head in and take all their stuff. No, no more evil test than that. The hammer doesn't force me to do any of those things. The hammer doesn't you know, cut off the options to do good or to do evil. There will always be tools, and, and so the decision making is not, should not be in this space of putting the tools into boxes, you know, on some series of Venn diagrams of, what, you know, are they a good tool or are they a bad tool? It should always be on, is this the right tool for this job? And if we, if we were in that space, where again, you know, back to what I was saying earlier about deciding on what the goals are, you can't, you can't even discuss what wrench you need if you don't know what size boat you have mm-hmm. right so what is the problem that we're trying to solve and then agreeing on what the problem is what's the overarching moral philosophy of why that's a problem that's worthy of solving and and and, and using that moral philosophy to right size the level of effort and and to prioritize are people dying are they suffering that's a higher order thing uh, is it about comfort? Is it about you know? And and not to say you deprioritize, but understand where those things are you know it, 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 relative to one another, and then you attack it and you attack it as a problem. Okay, we, we need to solve this. Here are the goals of solving it. Here's the things we can do and we can't do, and here's the reasons for those things. Um, and 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 okay, here's the here's the giant box of tools we have to, to leverage on this problem. Let's let's go to work. And and also to to be really you know humble and say. We don't know necessarily which tools are going to be the best, and so we might want to adopt a practice of selectively trying some of the different tools in different contexts and gathering more information about which of those tools is mm-hmm. is, is really wonderful. And to further complicate things, recognizing that the tools themselves are not static, we're constantly, mm-hmm. you know, evolving the toolbox and the tools themselves, so that it's and an being it's evolved an, by the tools. Exactly, it's a deeply iterative mm-hmm. process. And and to me, the biggest sin, when there are problems, is the sin of inaction. Right? Because inaction is the only thing that leads to no new information. So I would almost always rather make an honest, well-intentioned mistake and a false step going in one direction and be open enough and realize that was the wrong thing to do. Right? And then I can change. But if I paralyze myself with inaction, I can't decide what to do, then, then it's worse. It's it's it, you know you once the when you, when inertia is lost it's hard to regain, but inertia in one in the wrong direction can much more easily be turned into the right direction, and so the, the the habit that we have, of of confronting complexity, and coming to a standstill, coming coming to the crossroads and stopping, rather than trying, and I don't mean committing to a direction, but keeping moving to me is one of the gross sins. Because we know that the challenges that we're confronting are so severe and so big that we don't have a whole lot of time to sit around. We know that, and yet we often choose and we often argue towards ideological responses that are basically just gum up the works and mean we're not gonna do anything. Or whatever we will do will be highly diluted and pushed very far off in time. We, we, we like to kick the can. And I, I, I think kicking the can is, the, is really the worst possible thing that can be done
0: yeah, I think that's a great place to stop. You know, that the, the largest, biggest sin is action. I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, I think the, the conundrums, I obviously take a, a bit of a pension in the, just for my work in the technological space. And what I mean by that is like raw communications tech and like physical computing. And now this physical, biological divide that we're getting, that's starting to get a little bit more muddy. Um, you know, being in somebody that's in emerging technologies, that's a lot of what I work on. But mm-hmm. I think, in that space and in all spaces is, you know, I, I really agree with that. We are, we're facing something big by our own d- invention and from things that have come before us. And the only thing we can do is just try to iterate and try to get better at it.
1: There's really no choice. I mean, you know, it's funny how we talk about, you know, the fact that we have to respond to unintended consequences of the past as sort of a negative thing. Right. I don't know that there's another option. There isn't. There's never been. There's never been. Right. So I'm not sure why that's... It's sort of a completely inadmissible point I mean what is, I mean, it, if, if you feel that way it means you really think that there's at some moment going to be some sort of divine intervention that fixes things mm-hmm. or you believe that society really is working towards some sort of a stable non-dynamic place mm-hmm. you know, that we can return to Eden in mm-hmm. this, in this you know, kind of very boring <laughs> you know, static right. or, way
0: or a complete nihilistic perspective
1: well that nihilism has no place in any conversation <laughs> yeah I know but it's abound today right it's... there was
0: only one Well,
1: I think that misanthropy is okay Okay. You know, I, I, I think that, you know, um, and, I, and I say that almost entirely because of how much respect I have for, um, for Mark Twain. <laughs> oh, I love Mark Twain. Um, yes. and, and I think that, you know, the, you know he, 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 he channeled his, you know, he, and he really was a misanthrope. Yeah, definitely. But he channeled it into biting sarcastic humor yep. and, a, and a critique of society in a way that, w- that, that was, you know, ultimately helpful.
0: Well, uh, thank you very much for talking. I appreciate it. And uh, we didn't get to many of my questions, but hopefully we'll be able to talk yes. again soon. Uh, this was wonderful. Thank you again for Likewise. your time. And thank you. Yeah, this is a wonderful setting. <laughs>